listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We're going to go ahead and skip this week's musical guest, and we'll get right back to it soon. But joining us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Have you ever been trapped in a crowd, surrounded by people to the point where you have to move in the general direction they are moving, whether you want to or not? Many of us probably know what it's like to be jostled a bit trying to enter a venue for a concert or some other big event. But imagine what it must be like being overtaken by a wall of humanity, either slipping beneath their feet, realizing you have no way of getting up, or smashed against a door frame or a wall and squeezed so hard you can't catch a breath. It happened in 1979 when thousands of young people waiting to enter a Cincinnati arena for a concert by The Who suddenly surged forward. By the time the band took the stage, 11 of their fans were dead. We're going to put this episode under an occasional series we've been calling Mob Mentality, It's a look at events in Ohio where tragedy resulted from the actions of a collective crowd, a mystery to our minds of how human behavior can change in a group. It happened December the 3rd, 1979, at Cincinnati's Riverfront Coliseum, which is now known as Heritage Bank Center. Now, I'm going to assume most of you have heard of The Who, I mean, their various songs are the opening music for every CSI episode on TV, and they became famous for doing rock operas, like Tommy. In 1979, this superstar British rock band was at its peak of popularity and in the midst of the United States leg of a world tour. On December the 3rd, the Queen City was its next stop. The concert, of course, was a sellout, with 18,348 tickets sold in less than two hours. The majority of the tickets, almost 15,000 of them, were for what is known as festival seating, 10 bucks for an unassigned general admission ticket, the old first-come, first-served. In Dayton, an hour's drive from Cincinnati, some friends and acquaintances realized They had enough people to charter a bus to the concert. It would be great to go and not have to worry about the drive there and back. They even sold spots on the bus to some other people in Middletown, which was halfway between Dayton and Cincinnati. And so that Monday night, the bus passengers, 35 people in all between the ages of 17 and 27, excitedly arrived at their pickup destinations. Their bus driver, was Chuck Hundley. He collected most of them just outside Dayton in the city of Moraine. Among this group were Connie and Danny Burns, who lived in nearby Miamisburg. Connie was just 18, but already a wife and a mother to two young children, a three-year-old daughter and a five-month-old son. She was also her family's chief breadwinner through her paycheck from a local fast food restaurant. The concert was going to be a well-deserved treat in a busy, complicated life. Then Hundley drove to Middletown to a Howard Johnson's hotel off I-75, where the rest of the group boarded the bus. 
Settling here was Philip Kent Snyder, a 20-year-old who lived in Warren County's Franklin Township. The concert would be a welcome break in a stressful period for Philip. He had recently been laid off from the Hamilton Plastic Company factory and was attending a trade school, hoping to get life back on track. The rest of the trip to Cincinnati was uneventful. Bus driver Hundley was a veteran of these kinds of trips, but he was especially impressed with this group. Pleasant and polite, not loud, rough, or vulgar, like many of his contemporaries might have expected a bus full of young people headed to a rock concert would be. At 6.15 p.m., he pulled into town and parked near the stadium, west of the Coliseum, and his passengers hopped off the coach and wandered toward the growing crowd. Hundley settled in on the bus, where he would wait for their return. He had been relaxing on the bus for about a half hour or so when he could see there was a commotion about 500 feet from where he was at a pair of doors to the Coliseum. Well, commotion was an understatement. The way he put it later, all hell broke loose. There have been numerous experts to study those moments before and after all hell broke loose. And in hindsight, we have a pretty good idea of how it all happened. In the days immediately after this tragedy, some commentators wanted to paint the crowd as drug-crazed youths who behaved like animals. But investigations have contested that idea, saying the mob wasn't to blame as much as the decisions that were made by concert organizers. Normally, folks entering the Riverfront Coliseum had many doors to enter. There were openings on all four sides. And some of the people who had general admission tickets arrived early, expecting to be able to enter the venue at 3 p.m. Apparently, a local radio station had said so. So some diehards had shown up as early as 1.30 for a show that was to begin at 8 p.m. After all, it was first come, first served, right? As the early crowd grew to about 500 people, police were called to come help with the unexpected early birds. By 5 p.m., there were 2,000 people waiting to get in. People stood about smoking, drinking, talking, and getting more and more excited about the performance to come. When the doors were actually supposed to be open by 6.30 p.m., there were 12,000 people gathered outside. The venue and Cincinnati police had never experienced that size of a crowd prior to doors being opened. And still, the doors remained closed. By 7 p.m., people who had been standing in the cold for hours were not quite as happy and excited as they had been before. Already, there was physical pressure being applied to the early birds who were up against the door. Organizers later said they simply weren't ready to open. There wasn't enough staff on hand to take tickets, and the band had arrived late and might want time for a sound check. This last thing may have been what set the whole thing off. You see, in this particular tour, in lieu of an opening act, The Who was playing a brief film called Quadrophenia. 
It was based on their 1973 album of the same name and had been released just a few short weeks before their arrival at the Cincinnati concert. Inside the venue, the band crew was doing a test screening of that film. But that sound of music filtered out to an impatient crowd who was fairly certain by now the concert had just started. Now, agitated, those in the back began to push forward. Finally, and inexplicably, Coliseum staff opened two doors at the far right of the main doors, the Southwest Plaza entrance. Just two doors for more than 18,000 people, with a few staff on the other side doggedly checking tickets as they tried to hold the rest of the crowd back. People pressed up against the glass of the other doors, and they began pounding on the glass, begging other doors to be opened, but they weren't. The crowd at the southwest end of the arena, by some estimates 7,000 people right there at that corner, became tightly compacted as they believed the only way into a concert that had already begun was through those two far-right doors. And so the mob turned and surged right, like a tidal wave aimed for a very narrow opening. In this rush, people were trampled underfoot. Many of those who fell had no way of getting back up, and those who wanted to help them were helpless to do so. The mob moved as one body. One survivor who described the horror of being at the bottom of a body pile was Diane Kubert, a 20-year-old from Kentucky who said she was pushed to the ground and couldn't get up for at least 15 minutes. People walked right over her, across her back, across her legs. I wanted out so bad, but I couldn't move. I was pinned down on the ground, she told reporters from a hospital bed where she was being treated for leg injuries. Finally, for her at least, the crowd parted enough that two men reached down and yanked her up and out to safety. Like so many others, she had lost her shoes in the stampede. She found two random shoes on the ground and put them on to wear home. Her boyfriend, Marty, was a burly guy and found himself shoved to the ground five times. It was like 5,000 pounds against you, he said. I was just praying. I didn't think I was going to get out alive. He said he was disgusted that the whole thing played out at the front door in plain view of staff who seemed to have the power to end everyone's agony by simply opening the other doors. In another case, 15-year-old Gretchen Vanderkoot from Centerville was rescued after the tiny 5-foot-2-inch girl was lifted up by a large man who raised her over his head to give her the chance to breathe. In some cases, people were passed over the heads of the mob to the edge of the moving mass in order to save them. Another survivor shared this frightening image. He said as he looked around him, Everyone had their necks stretched as far as they could go, heads snapped back and mouths gaping open like fish waiting for bait, all in an attempt to breathe. In some cases, the plate glass doors people were being pressed against 
gave way and people poured through the broken glass. In hindsight, some say that may have saved lives, relieving some of the pressure in other areas. Bloody footprints marred the scene everywhere. Because hundreds of people lost their shoes in the stampede, many were forced to walk over broken glass, mostly beer bottles that littered the concrete. And still, police and concert organizers inside the venue would not open any more doors. People laying on the concrete were begging for their lives. Mark Williams, a 26-year-old from the Cincinnati suburb of Forest Park, said he was down there with them, heard them yelling how they were dying. A man laying next to him was unconscious. When Mark finally had enough room to move, he lifted the man by the shirt and slapped him in the face, telling him to wake up. He didn't move. Other witnesses said they saw people who were either dead or passed out, standing tall, held in place by the crush of a crowd that couldn't allow them to fall. When the crowd finally thinned out, there were piles of clothing at the two open doors, which had almost served as meat grinders, peeling fabric from people that were being forced through the opening. In the end, 11 died of asphyxiation. Autopsies reported contusions, hemorrhages, broken bones, and evidence of footprints across their bodies. In addition to the dead, 26 people were taken to area hospitals, General, Mercy, Deaconess, and Good Samaritan, for treatment. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present, If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. The concert went on as planned. Once organizers realized the bloodbath that had been taking place outside, they feared canceling the concert would cause another crush of people leaving. And so people were forbidden from leaving at all. A 21-year-old woman from the Hamilton County village of Green Hills, Stephanie Leach, said once they made it inside, she begged to go home. But police didn't want anyone back out there, where bodies were being carried away and the injured were being treated. She said it was painful listening to the music and hearing the crowd inside cheer at their favorite songs as if nothing had happened. I just felt numb, she said. It was terrible, all over a $10 ticket. Outside the Coliseum, our bus driver, Chuck Hundley, watched as police and ambulances arrived and worked around the scene. He stepped out and chatted up a police officer who told him they already had 11 people dead and more than twice that taken to hospitals. 
But since nobody had returned to his bus with bad news, Hundley assumed his passengers had all made it inside okay. After the concert ended, his people began arriving back at the coach. He took a head count. He was short three people. Danny Burns stepped forward, looking for his wife, Connie. They'd gotten separated in the crowd, and he couldn't find her. He'd watched the concert without her. Another man stepped forward. His friend, Philip Snyder, hadn't come back either. Then a third passenger, looking for his buddy, 22-year-old John Watts from Dayton. A police officer suggested Hundley and his passengers contact the Hamilton County morgue. They found a phone and called, but the morgue staff wasn't sharing any information over the line. Finally, a police officer offered to take the three people who were missing a partner to the morgue to check the bodies. Hundley and the other passengers remained on the bus and waited for their return. It was at the morgue where Danny Burns found his wife, Connie, that young mom from Miamisburg, and where the body of Philip Snyder, the laid-off factory worker, was identified by his friend. The third missing passenger, Watts, was located alive and at a Cincinnati hospital. Danny Burns returned to the bus without his wife. He had to get back to their children. The ride back was long, numb, and tearful. Numb and tearful, that was a pretty fair description the next day at the high school in the Cincinnati suburb of Finneytown. That's when the locals learned they had lost three of their young, all with connections to Finneytown High School. Killed beneath the feet of the mob were 15-year-old friends Jacqueline Eckerly of West Seymour Avenue and Karen Morrison of Winsray Court, who had spent weeks annoying their families with their excitement about going to their first concert. The 15-year-olds were sophomores and members of the school's gymnastics team. Karen was buried in a dress she had bought to go to a Christmas dance. Finneytown was also mourning Stephen Preston, a 19-year-old who had just graduated that past June. After graduation, Stephen had thrown himself into doing some carpentry and painting while he tried to make up his mind about college and a career. The night of the concert, his mom watched the news on TV and saw a body being carried from the scene. She said to herself, those shoes look like Stephen's. It wasn't until the following day, after Stephen didn't return home, that she learned it was. For many of the nearly 900 students at Finneytown High, this was their first experience with the death of a peer. Mixed in with the grief was anger and a sense of universal unfairness. How could three of the 11 dead, three of nearly 19,000 ticket holders, come from their hometown? The Who wasn't told of what happened until after the show. Their longtime manager, Bill Kerbishley decided there was no point in telling them before. Kerbishley had actually witnessed the crush as it happened, and decades later in an interview would say, despite everything, I still feel inadequate. I don't know about the guys, but for me, 
I left a little bit of my soul in Cincinnati. The next night, The Who followed through with a concert that was scheduled in Buffalo, New York. The band's frontman, Roger Daltrey, told the crowd, You all know what happened yesterday. There's nothing we can do. We feel totally shattered. But life goes on. We lost a lot of family last night, and this show's for them. Later, band members said they were distraught and feared if they canceled the rest of the tour, they would never play again. Cincinnati officials shut down the other two rock concerts that were scheduled for the Riverfront Coliseum that month, Aerosmith and Blue Oyster Cult. The city, as well as many other cities across the country, also quickly imposed an outright ban on unassigned festival seating. In Cincinnati, the ban lasted for 25 years, only repealed in 2004, though other precautions were in place by then. There were similar reactions far, far away. In Providence, Rhode Island, the mayor canceled the Who concert that was scheduled there a couple of weeks later. Even though that venue had assigned seating, the city wasn't taking any chances. As a side note to that, 33 years later, the band returned to Providence and honored tickets from that canceled 1979 show. The families of the victims sued the band, the concert promoter Electric Factory Concerts, and the city of Cincinnati. Ten of the 11 families participated in a class action suit, which was settled in 1983. Each family received $150,000. That's close to about 400000 today. The 26 injured shared approximately 750000 which is about $2 million today. The family of the 11th victim, Peter Bowes, opted out of the class action and settled independently for an undisclosed amount. Pete was an 18-year-old high school senior in Wyoming, another Hamilton County suburb, where he was an exceptionally bright student who loved music and played guitar. His teachers said he was a free thinker, creative, independent, and unbowing to peer pressure. He volunteered at Longview State Hospital and had already submitted applications to the psychology programs of several Eastern colleges. In addition to Peter Bowes, we've already mentioned the mom, Connie Burns, the Finney Town students, Jackie Eckerly, Karen Morrison, and Stephen Preston, and the laid-off factory worker, Philip Snyder. Here's a little more about the other young people who died that day. Teva Ladd was a mom of two children, two-year-old Casey and three-year-old Christine. She and her husband, Michael, lived in the Hamilton County village of Newtown, on Ben Street. Teva and Michael loved going to rock concerts. She was 24 years old, a usually quiet woman who doted on her kids, but she was always active, always on the go. Her neighbors thought of her as the happy housewife. Michael suffered bruises in the stampede, but survived. Walter Adams, Jr., was the 22-year-old manager of the service department in a Dayton-area auto dealership. He was gregarious and loved music and the outdoors, biking, off-roading, and every sport known to man. 
Walter lived on McGregor Drive in the Dayton suburb of Trotwood. He'd married his wife, Deborah, just 19 months earlier. He'd just bought the Who's new album and went to the concert with a friend who was also hurt in the same crush that killed Walter. His friend said they were right at the front door when the crowd surged, crushing Walter against the glass. Back at home, Walter's family was listening to a news report on the disaster when a knock came on the door. It was the Trotwood police with the tragic news. James Theodore Warmoth was born in Middletown, where he was a standout basketball player at Fenwick High School, then went on to two years at Purdue University. The 21-year-old lived on South Dixie Highway in Franklin Township, just east of Middletown. He was still getting used to his new job as a console operator in the Industrial and Systems Engineering Department of Armco. Two of the dead were from Kentucky. David Joseph Heck, a 19-year-old from Highland Heights, worked maintenance for the Kentucky Department of Transportation. He went to the concert with a group of friends. Brian Wagner, 17, was from Fort Thomas and in his first semester at Northern Kentucky University. He went to the concert with his brother Eric, a high school junior who was not injured. The disaster has been memorialized in many ways. Eleven weeks after it happened, the popular TV sitcom, WKRP in Cincinnati, aired a special episode they did called In Concert. It showed the show's characters attending the concert and their reaction after learning of the deaths. The incident was also the subject of a book, Are the Kids All Right? The Rock Generation and Its Hidden Death Wish. And it also inspired scenes in the film Pink Floyd, The Wall. There have been modern-day acknowledgments of it as well. In 2010, Finneytown created three scholarships to benefit students who are pursuing careers in the arts or music. They named the P.E.M. Memorial from the initials of the three victims, Preston, Eckerly, and Morrison. And it's supported by a concert featuring local musicians held on the first Saturday every December. In 2014, Pearl Jam played Cincinnati and did a cover of the Who song, The Real Me, dedicating it to those who died in 1979. Pearl Jam understood the tragedy more than most. In 2000, they headlined the annual Rock Slide Festival in Denmark, where a human stampede killed nine people. On the eve of the 35th anniversary of the tragedy, the city dedicated a memorial marker at the arena with a brief description of the event and the names of those who died. And on December the 3rd, 2019, on the incident's 40th anniversary, the Cincinnati TV station WCPO aired an hour-long documentary titled The Who, The Night That Changed Rock. The documentary was created and hosted by news anchor Tanya O'Rourke, who grew up in Finneytown. It was announced at that time The Who planned to give a concert for the Cincinnati area in April of 2020, with some of the proceeds going to those Finneytown scholarships. It would have been the band's first time back in 40 years.
but then the pandemic struck. Band member Pete Townsend said in the documentary, we need to go back to Cincinnati. You know, we do, as soon as we can. It would be such a joyous occasion for us and such a healing thing. He also said in the interview that he regretted the band did not stay to mourn with others at the venue on the night of the tragedy, saying, I'm not forgiving us. We should have stayed. In the years since, there have been a couple of disastrous concerts that experienced a greater loss of life, but those were due to fire. Best as I can tell, the 1979 Who concert in Cincinnati remains the deadliest concert in world history, owed to the crush of a crowd. In closing, Much of the research in this episode came from the extensive coverage of the Cincinnati Enquirer in 1979. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Thank you for joining us tonight, and we will see you next week. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.